Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. In Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have significantly higher mental health needs than other Australians and experience psychological distress at around three times the rate of the non-Indigenous population. To close the gap in inequality and provide the right treatment and support, we need a collaborative solution. This week's guest, Tom Brideson, is a Camilleroy Gomeroy man born in Gunnedah, located in northwest of New South Wales. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Gaya Dewey, a Proud Spirit Australia, a part-time Deputy Commissioner at the Mental Health Commission of New South Wales, and he also co-chairs the National Mental Health Workforce Strategy Task Force. Since the early 1990s, Tom has worked in Indigenous mental health and health policy, social and emotional well-being, clinical mental health care, suicide prevention, education and mental health leadership. His current workplace, Proud Spirit, is focused on Indigenous leadership, excellence and presence across all parts of the Australian mental health system. Their vision is to achieve the highest attainable standard of social and emotional uh, well-being, mental health, suicide prevention outcomes for Indigenous peoples. Tune in as Tom outlines his experience with Indigenous mental health and how we can be working collectively to improve mental health and well-being outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across Australia. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure to have you on uh, on the show with me, mate, and I appreciate you sharing your background as well as what you're up to with our listeners. Tom, if we start with your background, how did you get into mental health in the first place? I probably fell in, which is like many people. Yeah. We just apply for positions and different things and you end up getting a position and it sort of started from there. It was back way back in 1993. I wasn't working at the time and there was a traineeship that came up in Queanbeyan in New South Wales and I applied for that, got that and it sort of started from there. So you're, you're a proud Camilleroy, uh, Gomeroy boy, um, born up in, uh, grew up in Gunnedah and then, uh, or, or you're born in Gunnedah? I was born in Gunnedah. And then moved down to Canberra. towards Canberra. Yep. Mate, tell me about as you went through your traineeship, and I mean, tell us how that experience was, and was it something that just lit you up from day one? Or was it something that you're really passionate about from when you first started? Yeah, it was an interesting scenario. It was a pilot program down in Queanbeyan back in 1993, and I'd already started one year at university. And that was down at the University of Western Sydney, and that was through block release. So you'd go down for a few weeks at a time, Mm -hmm. four or five times a year. 
So that was in the welfare space. Yeah. And then the traineeship came up in mental health and I thought, oh, well, have a look at that. And in a sense, a lot of the similar sorts of things that were happening in the welfare degree, as well as from life experience and different things, it just all started to gel really quickly. And it was 1993 was the International Year of Indigenous People. And I went to four pretty serious conferences, and one of them was the Mental Health Conference. So that was the first ever National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Mental Health Conference in, um, in the University of Sydney. Wow. And what happened was that there was a lot of similarities to the welfare degree. There was a lot of similarities to life experience. There was a lot of similarities to the work that I was doing anyway. Yeah. Uh, Tom, you're a proud Indigenous man. Tell us about the importance of the culture in shaping your life growing up and, and how, how has that progressed and how have you seen that change? Well, it's, it's been really interesting. It's, there was many years of my mother, she grew up in a little place called Breeza, which is in between Gunnedah and Corindai. Yeah. And we grew up in Canberra, but we religiously, I guess, went back to Gunnedah on a regular basis right through our childhood and, and that type of thing. And there was a lot of exposure and experience, I guess, with, with all of that. Yeah. And my grandfather lived on the Liverpool Plains and my mum was one of nine. So you just wow. had yeah. people around you all the time. There was like kids everywhere and that type of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty special, huh? Yeah. Mate, uh, so as you get into the mental health space, Tell us, how did you come about to be in charge of the New South Wales Aboriginal Mental Health Workforce Program? How did that eventuate for you? Well, I, I had a fairly interesting career in, in the sense that after the traineeship, I was working clinically for about three years, three or four years. In Canberra? Uh, in in Queanbeyan. Queanbeyan, yep. Yep. And then I went across and done a, I was playing around with a master's in applied epidemiology and at the Australian National University. And again, many of the things sort of resonated. It's a, not a big leap between one thing and another thing in the Aboriginal space. And from there, I sort of applied for a position in the Commonwealth, in the Office for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health, in the social health area. So it was all related to the work I was doing. The work I done in the applied epidemiology program. Some of that was related to the space around mental health. And also, so I ended up getting this job in the Commonwealth uh, when I finished the, the course work at the ANU and was there for a number of years. And then I was seconded, I guess, for a couple of years down to the to Charles Sturt University where the traineeship ended up utilising Charles Sturt University for its qualifications and, and yeah. different things. So it sort of just all wow. sort of morphed together. And then I went back to the Commonwealth and I was still sort of happily involved in the mental health and social emotional wellbeing space. And this position in New South Wales came up and I thought it was a really good opportunity. And one of the things around workforce in particular is that programs come and go but the workforce stays and if there's a good investment in workforce then the potential around that is 
that will manoeuvre whatever the changes that take place in terms of whether it's reforms or whether it's just coming and going of programs. And in 2007, obviously, there was that opportunity where the state was putting some significant resources behind the program. What really took your eye about this? Because, I mean, this, this program has been described as, were, as uh, groundbreaking. T- tell us what was it that made that so such an impactful program? The program was a, a three-year traineeship and what it had was three years of university studies along with three years of workplace training and activity, which is a huge commitment for anyone. But the beauty about the program for me was that it was an enabled people within their own communities to undertake a mental health qualification. They didn't have to relocate. They didn't have to remove themselves from their own families or their own communities and their entire support networks just to go to university. And that, to me, is, is really, really attractive. And last year, we ended up with over 100 people that have graduated from that program. Wow. And many of those people are doing just amazing things. And some of them are working in the mainstream system. Some of them are working in the community control area. Some are working in across community services. And it's just something that's really, really rich to see. A number of them are off doing master's programs and different things. So you've got this from this little tiny seed, something that really sort of grows into something that can potentially change the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? And is that full-time? Yeah. It's full-time study. It's full-time employment and full-time equivalent study. Yeah, wow. So it's a huge commitment. We had a whole lot of resources that were around that program and a training sort of practical guide around that. And the essence of it was to, we didn't go down the road of having, whether it's psychology or social work or or any of those areas, we actually created an entirely new program at the university that was married to the national practice standards for the mental health workforce. So what we were saying was that we've got people that are starting off, they're already Aboriginal, that's probably not likely to change. And what they need is actually skills in the area of working in mental health. Mm. So what happened in the early years was that the old Greater Southern Area Health Service went through and said, we can't just have people coming out of this program that aren't aligned to an award structure that is suitable. So by the end of the first cohort in Greater Southern, they decided to move it across into the Health Professionals Award in New South Wales. Mm. And so, and then that started a bit of a flow on to some of the other services. But what happened incredibly was we had two external evaluations of the program over the years the last one being in 2013 and we had half of the people in New South Wales on an old Aboriginal Health Education Officers Award and the other half on a, um, an award that would sat within the context of the Health Professionals Award. And clearly the evaluators said, well, this can't... It's not good enough. Not good enough no. and, and so on. So what happened was that they recommended that we move all graduates 
into the health professionals award upon graduation and that also still takes a fair bit of time to get people across the line in that but my understanding now is that every single one of them are upon graduation move across into the health professionals award so essentially a new it's great group of people working in mental health yeah which is never easy to do no it isn't easy but also never more needed in indigenous mental health like it's such a what a great way to bring people through yeah and there's lots of activity that's happening in communities through aboriginal health workers there's a lot of activity that's happening in in terms of getting increased numbers in the main professions but what we were particularly interested in was bedding this program down making it relevant making it relevant to the award structure and watching and seeing people just grow and flourish in regards to what they do yeah that would be an incredibly rewarding part of the job yeah who are the people that were mainly applying and jumping in and doing the courses was it a lot of lived experience was it people that were just leaders of the communities what were you seeing any pattern in the first evaluation of the first 12 months rollout we had the majority of people were in their 30s they were people that had had life experience i guess across a variety of areas some of which is life uh, lived experience okay but it was people that were seeking a longer term career and you go through all of your sort of early years i guess and i certainly done the same got until about i was 33 when i went to university the first time and the majority of people had never been to university the majority of people were first time users of university programs they had most had children they lived in a whole range of different sort of circumstances and that type of thing so it was a mixed mixed bag i think the oldest was in the 50s and the youngest was in the early in the early 20s so but the majority were in that 30s odd so life experience was really an asset tell us about some of the challenges that you had during that 2007 to 20 period of being in charge of that what were some of the i mean surely there would be some challenges yeah there, there were many challenges and the main one was really around a suitable award structure and we kept arguing well not arguing but taking the approach that this is valuable it's not something that is an easy option to progress across an entire system but that would have been the the biggest challenge around it other challenges were in the role i had to visit each of the services in which had trainees employed and that just added kilometers onto a car yeah <laughs> and and i was on the road quite a lot but the other really really good thing about it was that it it gave some real exposure to many of the sort of national activities gave it exposure to committees that i'd never sort of dreamt of being on yeah and that type of thing so while it was challenging it was extremely rewarding and had i not got this new position i would have probably still been there and yeah. continuing on mate you are a busy man you're on many committees and rightly so it's great that um, you're so heavily involved and very active 
in the Indigenous social emotional wellbeing space, suicide prevention. Tell us about how the Gayadui, tell us about the declaration and then we'll talk about how that then formed the Proud Spirit Australia, the, the actual the vision that you're running right now. Tell us yeah. about the declaration firstly. Well, the, the declaration was an accumulation of many, many things over a number of years. We had an organisation, a leadership organisation called National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Leadership in Mental Health, Mm -hmm. which essentially was funded in the early days through the Mental Health Commissions. Yes. And and they were extremely supportive of the leadership group. And we had... And Tom, that was a national body, isn't it? That was a national body. Funded by the states. Yep. Territories, okay. So we had the early days of looking at what they were going to do around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health was they had a meeting back in 2013, I think it was, of all of the international commissions. And all of the international commissions met in Sydney and the issue came up around what to do around the the space around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or Indigenous mental health Mm -hmm. across the world. There had already been some work that our chair... Professor Helen Milroy and and another person from Australia that was involved with the International Initiative for Leadership in Mental Health. And they developed international declaration called the Farawata Declaration. And what the group in Sydney, when they met the commissions, decided to do was adopt the Farawata Declaration. And that became a bit of a catalyst to the early stages of the development around the Gay Jury Proud Spirit Declaration. And what our group said at the time was, that's all great and good, but what does that mean and how does that apply in the context of Australia? So we then sort of set about sort of meeting with a whole range of different people and yeah. we, we developed up the declaration. There was broad agreement to it. Commissions were absolutely supportive of of it. And the essence of the declaration is to achieve the highest attainable mental health and social emotional wellbeing and suicide prevention outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But the essence of the both the Farawata Declaration and the Gay Jury Proud Spirit Declaration was the best of both worlds. So mm. how do we actually promote the work around clinical activity and also marry the essence of cultural activity. So that was the essence of the declaration. And Yeah, well, it's interesting that it was planted in that, in that meeting in Sydney. The seed was planted there and then from there you went away and then had to work out yourself with the key stakeholders, obviously. How do we go about implementing a policy, bringing policy to prevent suicidal and for Indigenous mental health and improve the outcomes? And you got the buy-in, was it easy to get the buy-in then from, from Federal? I think the Federal were looking for solutions. Okay. And I think it was an easy easy win because they, the Federal Government had already supported people into this international initiative for leadership and mental health. So, okay. so it was a relatively easy buy-in and there's no one that could argue that that wasn't logical and a, a good approach. So the declaration became a companion document to the Farawata Declaration. And in, in fact, just recently, we 
just received some advice that we are the first country to actually implement the Farawata Declaration via this companion document. And that's from 2013? Yeah, it was emerged. The Farawata Declaration was created in 2010. The commissions agreed to it in 2013. That's incredible. The actual Gaya Jury Proud Spirit Declaration was launched in 2015 and within two years was locked into the fifth National Mental Health and Suicide Prevention Plan. Wow. So we, we were absolutely leading the way. Stoked. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, but you're also, we're talking about countries that are doing very progressive stuff as well that were involved in that. Yeah. And, and we're sort of seen to be leading the way in implementing this, do you think? Yeah, well, no other country has adopted it yeah. at this point in time. But it's not to say that they won't yeah. it's, or they're not doing parts of it. It's just in its entirety, we've got the green light to the implementation of that. Yes. So, so that is, from our perspective, a really, really good thing. And there was a whole lot of people that were involved. And, you know, Tom Calmore was involved, Helen Milrose is involved, yeah. Pat Dudgeon, we've got all of which are part of Gaya Dewey anyway. Yeah. So tell us about the, the vision and how we've taken it from the declaration into now what you're running as of, I mean, you've only been in the role for about a year, but tell us about how it's all gone from that into the implementation of it and what you're involved involved yeah. in. Yeah. Well, there was probably a number of things that were happening simultaneously. We had quite a bit of work that Tom Calmer led around uh, the development of a suicide prevention strategy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That was released in 2013. Mm-hmm. We had a national strategic framework for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health and social emotional wellbeing. The first one was in 2004 to 2009. The second one was, an, there was an eight year gap between that and the second one. And we advocated across a ministerial group that we were involved with at a Commonwealth level for that to be renewed. And we got that happening. So we had three major pieces of work that started to feed into as well as other things that we're feeding into an evidence, a really strong evidence base for movement and real action across the mental health space for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So what we ended up doing was had it launched, we had good buy-in, we had uh, following on from that, we received some more money from mental health commissions and through states and territories. And we set about how do we implement this across states and territories. Uh, so we went to all states and territories, except with the exception of Tasmania. We just couldn't get the buy-in at the time, in the time that we had. Yeah. And we ran roundtables with government, Aboriginal Community Control Services, and peak sort of agencies around the mental health space. And we've done that across the country. We've written up reports across that. We also had a meeting with or a roundtable with the national, the fifth plan expert advisory group, and they were supportive. Then we had a coming together of all of these roundtables at a Commonwealth level. Yeah. And we got good support for that. Then what happened was that that was late 2019, and we then decided to launch into a new organisation that was more collective in its approach, had 
collective organisations that are attached to it and we've now got and then we sort of launched the the whole idea around um, Guy Jury Proud Spirit Australia and that was announced in 2019 and when by the time we got organised constitutions and different things with organisations and their buy into it it was kicked off in April kicked off in late March just when COVID was coming along here and we were asked to produce some resources across the mental health space around COVID. So we've got seven board directors. Our patrons, Tom Kalmer. We've got Helen Murroy, who's a leadership group yes. representative. We've got Rob McPhee from um, Nacho. We've got Tanya Dalton from the Indigenous Psychological Association. Mm-hmm. We've got Donna Murray from Indigenous Allied Health. Monica from the indigenous doctors association and we've got two so they're the five member organizations but we've also got two other currently funded commonwealth government agencies one was uh, the center for best practice so pat dudgeon's representative of that and we've got the old it's changed its name now but the old postvention service for suicide and mark wenatong is is part of that but so that sort of is a massive sort of... It's an incredible team. ...team, but it's also an incredible collective of, of potential voices into yeah. the work that we do. The other thing that we've got uh, in sort of sitting around that, and this is all part of this collective excellence approach that we've taken, is that we've got a clinical council and a cultural council that feed into the board, and we've got five groups that sit underneath the secretariat that... One's lived experience, uh, stolen generations, uh, men, workforce, and there's another group that I just can't think of off the top of my head. Yeah. But these were these are hard to reach pe- groups, and we wanted to make sure that if we're going to do this, we want to be informed by. Or L- the other group was the LGBT- LGBTIQ yes. uh, group. So we wanted to make sure that we had really sound um, advice if we're going to go forward with this. Work. And highly inclusive, which is and really highly good. inclusive. Yeah. So each of these groups are just dynamic yeah. in their own right. What a great structure. And, and obviously it was still early days in it all. But I mean, I guess, how do you think it's going with as far as if we look at and focus on the implementation of the declaration as it relates to uh, what they've committed to do under the fifth National Mental Health and Suicide Prevention Plan, how, have you, how are you finding that that's going and are they embracing it and taking it on for the Indigenous side of things? Yeah, well, the work that we've got currently is we're in the final stages of the renewal of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention Strategy. Mm-hmm. We expect that that will be out for the final piece of consultation in the next little while, very little while. Following that, we'll have the implementation of the Gay Jury Proud Spirit Declaration mm-hmm. and the next piece of work beyond that is, uh, or probably simultaneously, is the we were asked to implement the National Strategic Framework for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Mental Health and Social Emotional Wellbeing, mm-hmm. but we've sort of come at a point in time when we're sat, where we're saying there's a huge amount of reforms that are taking place not just across the mental health area but also the aboriginal health area and 
the current strategic framework is due for finalization in 2023. Two years away, yeah. And it's two years away. So what we're saying now is that it might be not just an implementation plan, but what we might do is, if we get supported to do so, is to renew the whole framework and lock that into this big 10-year reform process that seems to be happening across every other part of mental health, but also Aboriginal health. So instead of waiting two years, would you just do that now and just yep. say, okay, let's look to 2030, yep. 2031 or something? Yep. And the other big <clears throat> thing, part of the reason why is obviously the, the short sort of lifespan of the, the framework. But the other big thing is that there's such a magnitude of changes that have taken place yeah. since 2017. Yes. Yeah. And even even prior to that, you saw the, the, well, the PHNs coming in as well, which, I mean, you just sort of have to look at that and say, well, we have to adjust and there's no point waiting in order to do that adjustment. So if you can align it with that, it makes sense, yeah. right? Well, in, in the original framework, or the, not the original one, but the, the one that's current, we responded to the government's response to the review into the national review into programs and services and they then rolled into the context around a step care model we rolled that into the framework within we we i think we got it in uh, i think the the response from government was sometime in i think october we developed the framework well before that but then we adjusted it to meet the needs of the new arrangements with the PHNs and that type of thing in the yeah. step care model and yes. that type of stuff. And I think we'd probably would have been one of the first to do so. We had it done within about a month. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's extremely fast for something like that to be incorporated. It was. <laughs> <laughs> but we wanted to be relevant and current. Yeah. And, um, that makes sense. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that we were in that space because we've got cultural models and also mainstream models that we needed to sort of ensure that we're aligned to. And that's the way that the government was going. So we, until things change, yeah. that's where we are. So Tom, the focus, I mean, initially when this has been set up, the GDPSA has been on preventative side of things. How do you think we're tracking with that? And do you feel like what what we have in the pipeline, what's what's happening is is extremely going to be extremely effective? Do you feel like it's going to improve the results and have that positive impact? I think what's was really, really important from the, the context of Aboriginal mental health was that for the first time in 2017, there was a priority made in regards to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So it took four plans and then they got it right in the fifth plan. And that was despite an enormous amount of activity that was trying to be heard prior to 2017. In 2017, we finally got sort of a little bit of a voice into that that space. And we are are particularly concerned about prevention, promotion, early intervention, treatment, cultural models, and, and the whole gamut of mental health care. And I think that if we can do that and do that well, I think we'll, which is already taking place in many communities anyway, but it's really, there's, there's a couple of things that it's 
in my mind that are taking place. There's a lot of activity that's taking place in communities. There's a fair bit of activity that's taking place in mainstream mental health services, but there's not a lot of the in-between areas that are taking place. And I think that that's where there needs to be some effort. There needs to be good, strong and sound relationships between Aboriginal community control services as well as the mainstream system. There needs to be better ways. What we've got is worked for 13 years in out at Orange with the workforce program. And on any day, what we had out there in the acute wards were about 20% of the people that were there were Aboriginal. Mm. Yet those same numbers were not applied or were not visible in community-based services like community mental health services. And so people were coming down into or coming into the system at the extreme end. And, you know, that's quite similar to to other contexts around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for all sorts of reasons in terms of history and trust and, and that type of thing. But people were coming into the system right at the hard end. And this whole work that we've been doing for the last number of years is really sort of saying, well, how do we actually drive downwards that hard end sort of entry point? Mm. So prevention is absolutely critical to that. The whole broad space around social emotional wellbeing is critical to that. And hopefully over time we'll start to sort of see this shift from acute areas into sort of yeah. better care, better treatment, better relationships, better, better outcomes, outcomes yeah. and that type of thing. And like we don't want to aim, we don't want to have a, an aim of having the same numbers of people in services. So 3% of the population, we don't want 3% of the population. We don't want anyone in there yeah. in acute services. So I think when we get down to the areas of targets and that type of space, it's really sort of saying our target is zero suicides, our target is zero entries into acute care and those sorts of things. And and there's none of that's unrealistic. No, you think it's achievable, obviously. Yeah, tell us about the importance of the recognition in your Indigenous social health and wellbeing, uh, social emotional wellbeing, as far as the culturally tailoring training and delivery of programs and how much of an impact that's have or having on the Indigenous communities compared to when there wasn't any of that stuff happening? Yeah, well, the programs, and I'll talk mainly around the workforce programs and that type of thing because that's probably the best place that I can sort of talk from. Yes. The types of programs that are happening, the investment and the long-term effects of those programs like the New South Wales Aboriginal Mental Health Workforce Program, are just profound in terms of what they'll do and how they'll change not just the lives of people in the mental health system, but the lives of people actually undertaking the training mm-hmm. and the communities and, and so on in which people live and work in. And having a full-time, ongoing, permanent job and having a choice, the real beauty about education is it provides people with a choice about where they might want to go. And the same as whether 
a person is a social worker or a psychologist or a nurse or whatever it might be, people should have choices to work wherever they wish to work in. And then the, the, the opportunities that sort of emerge out of that is not just for the benefit of people in terms of the people that are undertaking that, in terms of their career structures and that type of thing, but they're taking a mental health skill set into all of these other areas. And if they're doing that, you, know, you could imagine if you had four or five people trained in the one community and so mm -hmm. forth, and some, some are working in the AMS, some are working in the mainstream mental health system, and some are working for other government services or, or NGOs and, or community managed services, the richness of what that might look like in terms of where that might impact on you've got people that are trained in the mental health in mental health care that are then working across various spaces and that can only be gold is that the ideal outcome do you is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast are there more questions you want the answers to let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.